Welcome to the Scene in the Wild podcast, a conversation on Alberta culture presented by Wild Rose Brewery and the YYScene.com, Calgary's go-to guide to getting out. I'm Mike Bell, your host for the podcast, and joining me on this edition of Scene in the Wild is Mike Bezik. It was an absolute privilege to sit down with Bezik, as he was a huge part of my life and many, many other Calgarians, without him even knowing it. In the late 70s and early 80s, he was a host of a cable TV show called FM Moving Pictures. So ahead of its time, it was a music video show that featured videos by and interviews with non-mainstream acts such as XTC, Depeche Mode, Nash the Slash, Joy Division, Dire Straits, and Iggy Pop, to name but a few. It was alternative before there was alternative. And the legacy of that show is something that still resonates to this day. Bezig and I spoke about the origins of the program, which go back even further. The one thing that always amazed me about the show uh, was I think people really misunderstood my motives. You know, they never really understood why I was doing it. And the reason I was doing it was not because I wanted the fame or the the acknowledgement or yeah. any of that. It was, it was because nobody else was doing it. There was a void there. You know, th- there was nothing there for people to, to actually enjoy. You know, I mean, the, the, the kind of people that we were aiming at yeah. or that I was aiming at with that show, I mean, it was narrow casting, but it, it really got out of hand <laughs> so far as how popular it got. Okay, well, how did it start? You know, you, you tell me why you started it, but how you started it, because as you say, at that time, there, were, there was no outlet. There was nowhere to turn for people who liked that kind of music, yeah. for people who wanted to discover new music. It was either you pick up a, a copy of Melody Maker or, or NME from W.H. Smith, and it was already two weeks old, and then maybe you could go to one of the import record shops and find it, maybe, if you were lucky, but... How? Why? I, you know, I, I, I suppose I could go uh, right back to when I was, I think I was either 12 or 13 years old. A friend of mine uh, moved, I was living in the Crow's Nest Pass in Blairmore. A friend of mine moved to, to BC and uh, I went out to visit him for Christmas. And on the way back on the Greyhound, I was sitting beside this gentleman and I started to talk to him. And I realized just how much I enjoyed talking to this fellow. And he, he was talking about Las Vegas, and he was talking about writing songs. He was talking about, uh, uh, you know, being a huge Elvis Presley fan. And, uh, you know, and that he was here in Canada riding the Greyhound bus because he wanted to see Canada because he'd heard how beautiful it yeah. was. And, and this went on for a few hours. And at my stop when I got off, I asked him his name, and, uh, and it was Tony Joe White. Really? And so at the age of 12 or 13, my very first interview that I ever did was with Tony Joe White. That's amazing. And he went on to write Poke Salad Annie, and, you know, uh, it was a thrill. But aside from that, I did a radio program at school in, in the Crow's Nest Pass. So what it was, we had like a language lab, and I brought in 45s, and we did, after school, me and a couple of my friends, we got together, and we would tape the show yeah. that and ran at lunchtime every day. What, what kind of music? 
uh, whatever was there, all the stuff that was the hits. You yeah. know, like we got Siegler's hardware was nice enough to provide us with records and stuff like that. And, and if you look in my high school uh, yearbook, you'll see that 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 media is what I wanted to do. And um, uh, and I went and I moved to Winnipeg. And uh, in Winnipeg, I got involved with a, a a band called Bishop, and we were like Winnipeg's Black Sabbath. <laughs> so I was, you know, like I was the Aussie, I guess, the singer. And I started to write, and then it got to a point where we were doing some pretty good concerts, and we did some tours and stuff. Then um, from that, I moved back to Calgary here, got involved with Cable North. Okay. And Cable North, uh, I was like, well, why don't I do a music show? Okay, and people need to know what Cable North is. Yeah, in the old days of Cable 10, it was it was divided into North and South. Yeah. The whole idea of, of Cable 10 was that... Um, in order for cable TV to pipe all this American stuff into your house, they had to provide access to the, the community to, uh, to, to do it, you know, otherwise they weren't allowed. So they had all kinds of shows like looks at books and, you know, and I said, well, you know, I'm going to start a music show. And it was called Music in Review. Ran from about 72 to about 75. Wow. And what My, was that? What, what did that entail? What was the show? We ran videos, but back then, uh, videos were uh, film that you had to transfer okay. to two-inch tape. Like, they didn't even have them on, on videotape. They weren't even on, uh, on, on uh, three-quarter inch. You know, people that say, oh, you were ahead of the game when you did FM moving pictures from 79 to, like, 85. Well, this was, like, 73, 74, 75. That's where I got involved with, you know, uh, being lucky enough to uh, have interviewed, you know, people like, you know, Long John Baldry yeah. and David Clayton Thomas and, you know, uh, and, and, and one of my favorites, which was Ronnie Hawkins. Yeah. That's amazing. And then I stopped doing it uh, because I, I was really... And, and w Sorry, at the time, was this a hobby or was this... Were you getting paid for this? Or it was, was this always a hobby. It always a hobby. Always. People have to realize that community television... <laughs> I referred to community TV as the bastard child of the industry. Yeah. Essentially, it's like it's, it, nobody wants you, but you're there because the CRTC says you have to be there, <laughs> right? So uh, the fact that that something on, on, on community television becomes popular, a la Wayne's World, you yeah. know, like Mike Myers. But the fact that it becomes popular is, is kind of like an oxymoron, you know? Like, it's not supposed to be popular. It's not supposed to be, you know, uh, beating Masterpiece Theater and ratings at, in your time slot on Sunday night, you know? It's supposed like to be killing like, time. Yeah. Yeah. I joked about our show and uh, called it Bus Fair Productions because at one point, one of the camera guys bum bus fare off me. So Mike, I don't have any money for bus fare. Can you give me 35 cents? Back then it was 35 cents. Okay, but well, let, let's go to FM Moving Pictures. Started in 1979. The very first guest was Randy Bachman. Wow. And we ran uh, videos of uh, Moody Blues and, uh, and a couple of other alternative bands that I can't remember at this time. But... Um, a few programs in, um, James Miritich from, from the Herald did a review of Quadrophenia. And uh, I totally disagreed with his review. So I called him up at the Herald and I said, Mr. Miritich, I, I completely disagree with your review on Quadrophenia. Would you like to come out, do my show, and yeah. talk about it? 
and he came out and we talked about it and we hit it off like yeah, gangbusters because you know we respected each other's opinions and 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 our views and and then that led to James actually coming and being part of the show yeah which side were you on with Quadrophenia I loved it okay he hated, he hated it. it yeah he thought it was Mickey Mouse he didn't like Sting's <laughs> acting I thought Sting's acting was just fine you know well quit my job didn't I oh, I had to didn't I <laughs> you know but uh, I just I just loved I just loved that guy you know he was he was probably the most openly flawed individual I've ever known in my whole life if you spent five minutes with James then you knew James yeah because there were no there was no pretext with him he didn't put up any false facades or anything James was James all the time and you know there were times when yeah he was fucked up and he did this and he did that and you know but but he was always James and 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 he wasn't trying to pretend to be anybody else and that's that's one of the things that I really loved about him is that you, you you pretty much knew where you stood with him you know that it wasn't he never politicized anything he never but you know just before he passed uh, I, I went to see him in the hospital and and we were there for a couple of three hours and and we talked and we talked and we talked and we cried and and we hugged you know and and uh, I, I, the beautiful thing about it was that I got to say goodbye yeah. to him you know that I mean it's it wasn't like a kaboom somebody dies in a car crash or you know somebody kills themselves or you know i got to say goodbye to him and 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 we expressed our love for each other and and uh and it was a positive thing you know even though he was gone yeah i he took me under his wing and he helped me be the writer i was and and love music the way you're supposed to it was very easy to be inspired by him, yeah, you know, because because he would he would say things that um, that would often really hit home, regardless of who you were, you know. I mean, he was just such an, an open individual that you know he would say, "Well, this is shit," yeah. you know, like you know. I mean, it took me like six months to get him to like Joy Division. <laughs> like he's like, Mike, this is crap, you know. I I really don't. I said, James, this is like probably one of the best bands I've ever heard in my life. Yeah. And then I got him down the road to agree with me. So Good for you. Yeah. <laughs> nice sport. Yeah, but, you know. But it, it, it was tough to change the man's mind yeah. because I think he was pretty confident in, in his opinions. And, and I think that's what made him such a good critic is, like him or not like him, you knew where he was coming from. I, I oh, was just, I was re-watching the, the job of a critic segment that you have on on the YouTube site, and uh, you you knew where he stood, and you go, okay, well, James likes that. I don't like his opinion, so fuck him. He doesn't know what he's talking about, or vice versa. And and it was always good to have in this city a couple of guideposts. And I would put Dave Veach in that part where where you knew where he stood. Just let me say that that Veach is one of the best musicologists. In, in, in this city, you know, I, I, I totally respect David. Uh, I'm, I'm proud to call him my friend. He's just such an amazing human being. And he has an absolute photographic memory. Like I could say something to him and like, Dave is one of the few people who on FM moving, and he watched the show religiously. Yeah. He could, I mean, one day he started talking to me and he said, oh, I remember that, that, that specific, um, segment of the writers he actually remembered the writers yeah 
nobody else has ever talked to me about the writers. The writers was just these three guys we had sitting around be, with typewriters, smoking cigarettes and drinking beer. And they were supposedly the guys that wrote all the froth that, you know, like came out of my mouth. You yeah. know? Which, I mean, it was all winged. Like it was nothing could be further from the truth. It wasn't, you know hardly scripted it was all it was all ad lib but it, the joke was what these guys were writing yeah what I was supposedly saying but and he remembered that I mean and, and then I'll say something to him about a certain artist and he'll say oh yeah well it was this and this and this and then this record came out and that it, it's amazing and I just love talking to the guy and when we go to concerts together and you know uh, like I said I just I'm just so happy to call him a friend his knowledge again oh, of music just makes me feel yeah, stupid I just uh, fm moving pictures uh, let's talk about some of the highlights uh, you you're putting them up now the iggy pop and nash the slash that was that's incredible that was you know um nash is actually a very was actually a very close friend of mine the very first time he came to town through the record company i invited him to come out so he came out, and we just did a standard sit-down interview, Talking yeah. Heads interview, right? Then the second time he came through, he came to the station, and I had about six or seven albums that I, I was going to talk about. And I said to him, uh, listen, which ones of these five or six have you heard? Yeah. And he said, oh, I've heard that one, that one, that one. Okay, well, review them. Okay. So the second time, I got him to review them. Third time, we did Cooking with Nash. Yeah. Where we <laughs> cooked chicken paprikash in my house. Um, and then the fourth time he came through uh, was with Iggy. And I talked to him, and I said, is there any way that you can talk Iggy into coming into the studio and you guys interviewing each other? And I guarantee you, no holds barred, you can say anything you want to say. You can do anything you want to do. I give you total freedom. And he said, okay, let me talk to Iggy. And he talked to Iggy, and Iggy agreed to it because of the freedom, because yeah. they could do anything they wanted. And they just came in and just made fools of themselves. They just, <laughs> I mean, they just had a great time. Yeah, it was people just, need to see it. If you Google it, it comes up as being one of the top 10 events on cable television in Canada. Wow. Next week, I'm off to Toronto. I'm participating in, in the uh, Nash the Slash uh, documentary. Wow. They're doing a huge uh, documentary on Nash, and they're interviewing me for that. Plus, I'm taking them the, the master VHS copies of, of the Cooking with Nash as well as the, uh, the Iggy and Nash. And to watch, to watch Iggy like play for over two hours straight, jumping around on that stage, just giving it everything he's got, and then within like five minutes after they finished the show and him come up and, you know, shake my hand and say, hi, Mike, nice to meet you. You know, Nash says you're a great guy and da, da, da. I'm really, and he's not even out of breath. Yeah. I mean, the guy was so athletic. And like a year later, he came through with the pretenders and he told the guy from A&M, he said, well, you know, I want that guy to come backstage and give me a copy of that video. So I'm like, oh, oh, that's pretty cool. So I got a backstage pass. He finished his opening thing for uh, Pretenders, and then uh, I went backstage, and uh, this beautiful oriental woman answers the door, and she's stunning, you know, China girl. Yeah. And um, so I sit down, and we start to talk, 
and he's telling me all about you know how after the show that we had he broke his ankle in Edmonton he jumped off the stage and broke his ankle and we talked about this that and the other and then it, and, and you look around and all there was in the whole dressing room was fruit vegetables um, you know the guy was total health nut like no no drugs nothing nothing like that no alcohol nothing and then he said to me, hey, you know, it's a good thing you brought this VHS copy. And I said, oh, really? He said, yeah, in a couple of weeks, David's coming by, and I want to show it to him. Wow. So he showed it to Bowie. That's fantastic. Which just blows my mind. You know, that something I had something to do with, something that I produced, was seen by David Bowie. And, and I got to work with Iggy Pop. And I've been really lucky, Mike. I've been really lucky, you know. You're listening to the Scene in the Wild podcast, presented by the YYScene.com and Wild Rose Brewery, brewing quality local beer for the great Alberta wilderness. Stay wild, Alberta. My guest on this episode is Mike Bezik, who hosted influential Calgary cable TV program FM Moving Pictures back in the late 70s and through the mid-80s. One of the most infamous moments surrounding the program, and one that people assumed was the reason behind Bezig eventually putting an end to it, was an altercation he had with some rather displeased Van Halen fans. Bezig talks about that, some of the other controversies, and the power that the show actually had. Back then, things, I think, were really divided off into factions, you know? Yeah. You, you know, you were either one of the goths, or you were this, or you were the punks, you were the... You know, everybody had their their badge of, of honor but you know as far as I was concerned we wanted to serve people that just liked music that wasn't being played on the radio yeah none of this was being shown anywhere else I mean this we were before uh, much music yeah we were before MTV you know I mean we preceded even I think preceded brave new waves and and nightlines didn't you yeah yeah yeah, yeah. 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 brave new waves and nightlines was came afterwards yeah. and, and I just loved Ben Murphy yeah, and those guys. That, that was just such an amazing show and I worked in a record store so I was incredibly accessible which was in itself kind of frightening I mean you say something on a on a show on a Sunday night and Monday people are coming in and talking to you about what you said and and let's face it which, I mean if, if Larry Day or you yeah. know or, or Daryl Jans if, if either one of those guys worked in a in a drugstore, eventually somebody would come in and take a swing at them, you know? Okay, you brought it up. You brought up the incident. Essentially, it was not long after a, a Van Halen concert here in Calgary. And in that review of the Van Halen concert, uh, James Muratich kind of called them neo-Nazis. <laughs> so he was, he, was, he, he was very derogatory towards Van Halen in that, in that review. And I was working at Sam's in TD Square, and, and uh, these two guys walk by, and I'm up at the counter, and the one guy says, Whoa, that Muratich, you know, what a fucking asshole, and da-da-da-da, and all the shit he's saying about Van Halen, what a prick he is. And, 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 and I'm just like, you know, look, it's, it's, he's a critic, you know? He's there to make you think. Da, da, da. No, no, he's a prick. And he just starts saying, come on, let's, let's go outside, let's go outside. So I, I just said to the guys at the store, I said, oh, I'll be back. So we walked out, and we were going to go to um, the Eaton's Parkade. And uh, by the time we got to the Parkade, there were six of them. So I came to the realization that even if I win, even if I beat this guy, I was going to lose. Yeah. And I started to get really scared. 
Like, I am really fucking scared right now. I could get killed here. So we started to wrestle around a little bit. The other guys just stood around and watched. He quickly came to the realization that I was stronger than he was because I was, you know, like moving him around. And, and then I thought, I, you know, I said, this can't, I thought to myself, this can't go any further. So I just stood there. Yeah. And I waited. And I waited. And then I saw him pull his arm back and, and he nailed me in the face and he just hit me so fucking hard man I still got a chip in my tooth even after all these years and I saw stars and I was just in Narnia you know and uh, I just looked him right in the eyes and I just said you're fast and they let me walk away Wow! and that's how I got out of it but there was a, there was a friend of mine named Chuck yeah. and he was a comedian and he was back and forth from LA all the time he was a stand up comedian so I said to him, Chuck, listen, these guys watch the show. We have to do something that shows them that I don't give a fuck, you know. I want to laugh at them on the show. We need to write this thing about me getting punched out. Punch it, face challenge. Yeah, and it became punch face challenge. And, and, it, it's, and that's the background story behind that. Punch face challenge. My favorite thing about that is the... Cars on blocks, cars on blocks. <laughs> rah, rah, rah. <laughs> the the Ogden, Ogden High, the Ogden High <laughs> cheer. <laughs> well, like Chuck and I just sat down and we wrote that together. <laughs> but that was Chuck's line. I'm I sure. remember Cushy that book. always. Uh, it was absolutely brilliant. So there is no such thing as Ogden High, is there? I don't think no, so. There isn't. But okay, so so, and uh, I'm sorry I interrupted you in, in that case. So so it was this. It was a skit you put together to to make fun of that, and it. Was Oh, yeah. Basically I, I, punch. I specifically, we specifically did that for those guys yeah. that were there when I got punched out. Because it was obvious that they watched the show. Yeah. Otherwise, you know. So Did you, you know, hear from them afterwards? No. <laughs> no, I didn't expect to. You know, a lot of the stuff that we did was completely stupid. But people really liked it. Yeah. We had this unbelievable amount of freedom that just seemed to grow. As the show got more popular, the freedom got more and more and more. It got so popular that Cable 10 was actually afraid of us. Really? You know, like the big guys at Cable 10 were like, oh my God, they said something derogatory about Kick FM and Kick wants to sue them. What What are we supposed to do? You what know? did you say about Kick FM? Oh, just, you know, Kick's first song was for those AC, about to rock. Yeah, right? ACDC. And, and I just said something along the lines of, well, you know what? My audience has already turned you guys off. You know, like, yeah. they're not about to listen to you because... What my audience wants is, is, is for you guys to play some of what we do here. And they started to get into this back and forth with uh, the station director about, oh, do you know that's very derogatory? We, we could sue you for that. And uh, No, you couldn't. The other time we almost got sued was there was this guy up on 71st Avenue. He started a record rental business. And he was renting records and selling tapes. And that's all he did. So... You know, I got on the air and I just kind of said, you know, this is bullshit. You know, this this guy is is scum. You know, I really hate people that do that. I mean, he's he's essentially he's he's stealing money from yeah. ripping know, off he, artists. That's right. He's yeah. stealing money from artists, and and then he phoned up the station and threatened to sue the station uh, unless I apologized. I said. No, why would I apologize? You know, I mean, what I said was the truth, you know. And he said, well, if you don't apologize, then we're going to sue you guys. We're going to sue cable TV. I'm like, oh, all right. Well, watch next week's show. So the following week, I got on the air and I said, listen, 
I have to tell you exactly what I meant and exactly what I what I wanted to say about this. The guy's a weasel. <laughs> so so he called back and he said, "Oh, you you're really asking for it." And I said, "You know what? Come on the show next week." He came on the show. And we talked and I said, "You seem like a really nice guy." And I think I like you. I just don't like your business. Yeah. Prior to this interview on the show, Brian Eagle from Polygram said, you know what, I've talked to Toronto, the head office at Polygram, and Mike, if this guy fucking sues you, we will pay for your lawyer. Wow. We'll pay for your lawyer. So after the interview, essentially the lawsuit fell by the wayside and everything was okay. Okay. <laughs> so, so but you... his business, like within two months, he was gone. Good. The effect that the show had just blew my mind. You know, Kick started playing stuff that we were showing. Just to give you an idea, I, you know, I, sometimes I go to the Bay cafeteria to eat, you know? And this one time I'm in there eating supper and I look up and these two old ladies from a ways away, a couple, three tables away, they're just staring at me. Then I look down and keep eating and then I look up again, then they're still staring at me, you know? So they finish and they're passing my table and as they pass the table, the one old lady says, uh, excuse me, uh, young man, are you Mike Bezik? And I said, uh, yes, ma'am, I am. You know? And she, she said, do you get paid for doing that TV show? And I said, no, I don't. And she just elbowed the other old lady so hard that the other old lady just about fell over, right? <laughs> and she goes, see, I told you he doesn't get paid. So... Now, whether it was they were watching because their grandkids yeah. watched when they came over to visit them or whatever, but the other time, which blew my mind... By the way, if she had come at you, do you think you could have taken her? Oh, yeah. <laughs> In a heartbeat. <laughs> In a heartbeat. <laughs> but this other time was so funny because I lived on 21st Avenue and 4th Street, and for some reason we were going towards downtown. Now... I was with a friend of mine, and we were just so smoked up. I was, you know, of course, Sorry, back For the then, kids, what does that mean? Oh, marijuana. Oh, okay. We were pretty high. <laughs> the reefer. Yeah. A little, <laughs> yeah, I've been injecting a little bit of that marijuana myself, you know. <laughs> so I'm just fried, and I'm walking down 4th Street, and back then around 12th Avenue, there was this place like a donut shop. I think I needed a drink or something. So we walked in there, and it was about 12, 30, 1 o'clock in the morning. And the place is literally full of cops, <laughs> Calgary police cops. And I'm like, oh, and it was like the sound of my asshole clenching with fear, yeah. you know, because I was just so paranoid. Right? Yeah. That's always what was happening with pot, man. It wasn't the fact that you were smoking pot. It was the paranoia that, that yeah. was going to do you in. That's why I can't do it. And I'm like just freaking out. But you can't do anything drastic because it's a bunch of cops, right? So I walk in and the one cop looks up and he goes, Hey, it's Mike Bezik. <laughs> Every cop looked up. Hey, what's going on, Mike? It was as though the Calgary Police Service was one of our biggest fans. Like, so many cops watched that show. Wow. It was just so cool to find that out, you know? like Well, because they get the best weed, is my understanding. So <laughs> that's probably why they enjoyed it so much. Just, there you go. <laughs> but the power, the power of the medium, even, even when it was like Cable 10... Every time we did a live show, the next day, AGT, because it was AGT back then, uh, they would call up the station and go, 
what was going on there last night because the lines were just jammed. Amazing, amazing. You know, like we were scheduled to go from 9 till 10 and 12.30 and we finally finish, you yeah. know. Phenomenal. The other thing that was really cool was the Stranglers were coming into town. So I said, can we do an FM focus on the Stranglers, which meant, can we, can we film their concert? Yeah. So uh, Bill Neely, the, the CBS rep at the time, said, well, I'll ask their management. So he asked their management. They don't want to do it. The manager told me, you know what? We just told pay TV to fuck off. Yeah. Like, why would we do it for free? For you guys, yeah. for free, you know? Yeah. And I'm like, oh, well, whatever. There's nothing we can do. So the night before the show, we had a live, a live show scheduled. The next day, I get a call from Bill Neely, and he says, Mike, the band watched your live show last night. They tried four or five times to call in. They couldn't get through. They really loved that you kept pushing their concert. J.G. Burnell called me, and he said, are those the guys that want to film our concert? And Bill Neely said, yeah. And Burnell said, you know what? You let those guys film our concert. We want to work with those guys. Those guys are from fucking outer space. <laughs> His exact word. <laughs> so, you know, we got to film the North American television premiere of The Stranglers. Wow. Like where, nobody had ever filmed them before in, in North where, America. Where, where is that now? The footage? Yeah. I don't have it. You don't have it? I don't have my interview with Robert Fripp. I don't have the Peter Tosh focus. I don't have uh, so many of that. It's gone. Because what was happening is that cable was bulk erasing stuff. They only had X amount Jesus. of tapes. So all this historic shit that, that happened, you know, like, oh, it just, it just... That breaks your heart, doesn't it? Totally. Yeah. It's all gone. And they didn't think of it as having had any value back then. I mean, I have probably like seven or eight tapes of FM, but it's the towards the end of the, of, yeah. of the series. Like one of the things that is... In my opinion, the most sought-after thing, uh, we got the hot nasties to come in, and it was chaotic. It was just fucking amazing. I just loved it. You know, Kinsella and his guys, and yeah, it's, uh, yeah, the people need to know. It's, oh, Warren Kinsella's band. I mean, and who is Kinsella now, right? Just some guy that used to, <laughs> you know, write the prime minister's speeches. And have you been following the the shit talking going on between him and uh, Lonnie James? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, you know, I'd prefer to stay out of stuff yeah, like that. fair enough. But that footage is gone. Yeah. And that's so historic, so important locally. There's one guy that's on one of the forums said something about, I have every FM that was ever done on, on VHS. So I responded to him saying, do you have the one with the hot nasties? Because, God, we want that. You know, we want that so bad. I mean, if we found that, Kinsella would kiss up one side of my ass and down the other, you know? <laughs> so, you ever kill anybody, Mike? I will represent you. <laughs> you know, he's one of the best lawyers in Canada. After six years on the air on cable TV in Calgary, and to the sadness of many, Mike Bezik put an end to FM Moving Pictures. He tells me the real reasons why that happened, talks about the short-lived show he did following it called Chroma Key Kids, and his support of local music, including working with bands such as Funeral Factory and Tau Seti, the latter of which provided him with what he calls one of the biggest mistakes of his life. And finally, Bezik teases what's to come, something that fans of his old show might be interested in. Why did you stop? 
Uh, several reasons. The punch-out thing was, was maybe a tenth of it. I had to do stuff for a living, right? Yeah. So I worked in a record store. I mean, anybody could walk in there at any time and say whatever they wanted. People used to fuck with my head, you know? So they know me, but I don't know them. Yeah. You know? See, it was confusing in that sense. Well, not confusing. It was aggravating. Um, I was getting to the point where I was really getting pissed off with how much sex, 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 sex in all the videos, you know? Yeah. You know, it was like the scantily clad chick and, you know, I started to think, you know, I don't like this. The one time I was walking down 4th Street and this mother with her daughter, they were walking in the opposite direction towards me. And the girl couldn't have been more than like six, six or seven. And as they got closer to me, the little girl pointed at me and she said, look, mommy, he's on TV. Mike, it hit me like a ton of bricks. I go, this little girl is watching my show. I have nothing to do with the solution. I am part of the problem. And the other portion of it, which maybe was maybe 30% of it, was I think James and I were becoming parodies of ourselves. You know, it was like people were expecting us to act a certain way or, I mean, I can remember this one time, I walked into the office and there was a radio in the garbage. So I took the radio, we put it on a table, and I got a hammer. And I said, James, you talk about radio, and you smash the living shit out of this radio. <laughs> and so that's what he did. He talked about how crap radio was, and they're always playing the same old shit. He just winged it perfectly. But one of, the, one of my fears was they expected us to be a certain way. <laughs> we barbecued the Depeche Mode record. <laughs> <laughs> which, just, which Depeche Mode record was that? Oh, I think it was People or People oh, Single okay. or something like that. <laughs> it was just like, not very good song, but all you can do is, and we threw it on, I threw it on the barbecue. <laughs> James got a hot dog bun and rolled it up and put it inside the hot dog bun. And of course, Monday morning, I got a call from Warner Brothers. <laughs> Please refrain from destroying our product on the air. You know, like, it was just like... Well, you made a difference. You, you, you got people's attention, and that's... Uh... I would take the bus to all the record companies, and I would get hyped by them. They'd give me all the bullshit, you know, uh, and I'd dissect whatever I was given and then funnel through what I thought my audience cared about, what, I, what they gave a shit about. So you ended it, you pulled the plug. Six years? Six years. Six yeah. years. And then Chroma Key Kids. Chroma Key Kids was uh, kind of like a, an attempt to be anti-video and... A reaction to... Yeah, it was yeah. a reaction to the fact that we no longer really liked videos. It still got a lot of viewership. I mean, it was, it was still there. You know, I brought on, like, John Rutherford to do blues. I brought on Timothy C. Heck to do way out there uh, ambient music. And, and so um, it was just to talk about it, right? That was... Correct. Yes. Correct. With a live audience. You know, Frank Lockwood would do jazz and classical music. And, uh, you know, we just had it into different genres. Like, different, I was still into the alternative. And, uh, and it... It wasn't the same. Yeah. You know, it really wasn't the same. I mean, I, I, I still enjoyed doing it, but it really wasn't the same. One of the things that people have to realize that there were, there were times when during the course of one season, we did like 49 shows. That's unheard of. I mean, I mean regular TV, that's completely unheard of. It's easy to start something like that, 
but to do it every week for like five years. So much of my life went into that show. Yeah. And for no money. No money. Do you regret it? Do you regret, regret leaving it? Uh, pulling the plug, yeah. Uh, no. Not after Chroma Key Kids kind of put the nail in it for me. It's like smoking cigarettes. You know, you, you smoke, and then when you stop, uh, it's that first little while where, you know, you dream about smoking cigarettes. Well, that first little while, I dreamed about interviewing, and I dreamed about doing the show, and I dream- but it, it stopped. One final thing I want to talk about, and it goes back to the James Muratich, what is the role of a critic, and a, and a large part of that was about representing the community, and that is something that I always respect about the show and Muratich and Veach is oh, that man. writing about local bands and encouraging local bands and showing local bands and I know you promoted a lot of pretty amazing local acts at a time when the scene was just starting it was just it was just beginning and yeah. that's got to mean something especially where where the music scene is now Tausetti approached me they brought me a demo tape I liked it so much like I had them on the show but I liked them I liked it so much that I decided that I wanted to work with this band and I wanted to try to see if we could get anything going for them so in the end I ended up releasing records and uh, we I produced some of the stuff and uh, we did a video for them and it didn't work out but it should have Tau Seti should have been huge I even got Rupert Hine interested I still have the I still have the letter from Rupert Hine Wow. Where I submitted, because I'm a huge Rupert Hine fan, yeah. of not only of his own stuff, but all of his productions, you know, like Tina Turner, The Fix, and Stevie Nicks, all this stuff. Um, I submitted a demo. Well, no, it was, it was more like the records that we had up to that point. It took about four months, but he finally responded. And I still have the letter at home. You know, I'm, I apologize, da 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 but I'm most interested in hearing more from this band, you know? So he actually was interested in working with Talcetti. So what I'm about to relate is one of the biggest mistakes of my whole fucking life. Uh, A Sunday afternoon, we went into Living Room Studios with Richard Harrow and we cut live off the floor, we cut like seven tracks. We just did them over and over until I was happy with them. And then uh, I ended up calling it the Rupert Hine tapes and I sent it off and there was no response he never responded and I couldn't figure it out and then one day I'm reading one of the forums on the Calgary cassette thing yeah Calgary cassette preservation society yeah Yeah. and I'm reading one of those forum things and and, uh, somebody brings up the Rupert Hine tapes and then it hits me like a ton of bricks I called it the Rupert Hine tapes and he actually had nothing to do with the band. I should have called it demo tapes for Rupert yeah, Hine. So I shouldn't have called it the Rupert Hine tapes. So when he got this, you know, it, it seemed presumptuous. I mean, he's, this guy's got tapes coming out of his yin-yang, yeah. right? Everybody in the world at that time, he was so hot, everybody wanted to work with him. And for something to come in and it says the Rupert Hine tapes. Do you think that's what it was? I really do. Wow. You have to hear that tape, Mike. It would blow your fucking socks off. I'm sorry, but Tau Seti should have fucking made it. They should have, and I blame myself. Is it on the Calgary? No. Cassette? 
No, I have a cassette at home, the only existing cassette. Wow. Like I said, it'll blow your mind. And with Rupert Hine producing it, oh, piece of cake. Funeral Factory, I thought, was another one where, you know, probably the best band ever from Calgary that never made it, you know. They bring me a demo of a song called People Need to Be Killed. And I go, fuck, I want to work with these guys, you know. This she is, hasn't this, changed much, has she? No. <laughs> Mary That's Lynn. Mary Lynn. Oh, God, I now. love her. Yeah. I love her. I love her bits, you know. Yeah. She's just such a fabulous, she's an amazing writer. She's an amazing human. Uh, just, just blessed to have her be a part of my life, and just you know, us having lost Greg just around Christmas time or just before, it was just so fucking sad, you know. All right. Well, we need to. It's all probably, history. Eh? We we'll probably end this on a happy a note. Yeah, it's some kind of. <laughs> let's talk about something happy. Wow. Okay. Uh, so, so there is something coming from you. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, keep keep your ears open. Uh, I'm off to Toronto to do an interview, to be a part of the Nash the Slash interviews, to visit a friend. But it's something that I've been working on for 14 months. So uh, I don't want to kind of let the cat out of the bag. If something messes up, then, you know, I'll, I'll come off sounding whatever. But the, the, the whole idea being that in order to restart it, I need a big name. Yeah. I've been trying and, and you know, when you... This is something that really pisses me off. When you, I've met, talked to, casually done things with um, Burton Cummings, you yeah. know, and on six occasions. But, you know, I talked to his publicist. Do you think it got past his publicist? No. no. And I could have done the most amazing interview with Burton because I've got all this background with him. You know, working at Opus 69 and my boss saying, Mike, do you want to come in early tomorrow morning? Burton's coming in to do some private shopping. And we open the store an hour early and he comes in and buys like 200 albums and running into him at the paddock. And it doesn't get beyond. He said, oh, well, we'll talk to the management and nothing. Yeah. Randy Backman. You know, I talked to Randy Backman's people. Oh, well, we have to be very mindful of his downtime. I'm like, he was the very first guest on FM Moving Pictures, like in 1979. I'd like to have him be the very first guest on the, the reboot of FM Moving Pictures, you know, like all these years later. Yeah. Do you think he even was told about it? No. I talked to uh, Roger Waters' manager. You know, I called him up in the UK, talked to him for a while. Oh, yeah, yeah, da, 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 da. Well, you know what? Call this publicist. She called the publicist. Oh, no, you know, Roger's whole tour has already been planned out. So da, that's da, da, da. It. It's Again, not, it's, it's not going to happen. It's changed. The it's industry totally changed. has... It's totally changed. Well, and also, I, I guess those musicians have changed. They're less involved in their own... You know, I had lunch with, or I had a kind of a brunch with Shelley Youngblood, and I was expressing my frustration to her. And I think she, I think she thinks I'm a bitter old man. <laughs> you know, just expressing my frustrations about, uh, you know, the stuff and not being able to get through to these people to talk to them, you know, like face to face. It's not like I'm Joe Schmo, you know, know, but publicists don't give a shit what you did 30 years ago. Yeah. Publicists want to know what did you do last week? You know? Publicists don't even want to know what you did five years ago or two years ago or three years ago if, if you're starting from scratch. 
Exactly. You're starting from and scratch. And you know what? I don't want to go through the whole, you know, interview uh, club owners and, you know, <laughs> I interviewed Harris Dvorkin from <laughs> from the, the 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 country bar. No, ranchmans. Ranchmans, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, I went down there one day and I, when Ian Tyson was playing there and I said, oh, Harris, you know, listen, can you introduce me to Ian Tyson? He goes, oh, I think he's just out there in the lobby right now. <laughs> so I walk up to Ian Tyson. And I said, oh, Mr. Tyson, I'm Mike Bezig, and uh, yeah. da, da, da. I do a cable TV show called Africa. Who the fuck are you? <laughs> That's my contact with Ian Tyson. Who the fuck are you? You think he's cranky old fart now? <laughs> and actually, Ian's one of the other guys I want to approach. Yeah, uh, he's... I'll, full circle. That was our first podcast. Yeah, that's that's amazing. You know, I love him. I love what he does. I love. Yeah. <clears throat> I want to bring back FM because I still believe that there's a need for it. I still believe there's a place for it in what's going on, and to have it on the internet will give it that kind of freedom that after a while we achieved on having cable by being so popular that they were afraid of us. Thanks for listening to the Scene in the Wild podcast. This episode was recorded live at the Wild Rose Tap Room on Thursday, March 29th, 2018, and produced by Laurie Matheson at his Arch Audio studio. Thanks very much to Mike Bezik for sitting down with me and personally for helping shape my taste in and my love for music. You helped open up a whole new world, sir. Thanks also to the Taproom staff for hosting us. Thanks to Wild Rose for supporting the podcast, for supporting culture in Alberta, and for creating the amazing beer they do. For past and future episodes of Scene in the Wild, please download it on iTunes or visit theyyscene.com. I've been your host, Mike Bell. Cheers. <laughs>